0: Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. This episode is brought to you by Mobile Assistant. You know, it's crazy to me that nine times out of ten, when I ask a financial advisor if they use Mobile Assistant, they've never even heard of it. So if that's you, I'm about to change your life. After a day full of appointments, who has the time or energy to sit down in front of your computer and type out all your notes to get them into your client database or CRM? I know I don't. Enter Mobile Assistant. I literally tap an app on my phone, speak my meeting notes into a voice recorder, and then tap Submit. Within a few hours, my team and I have an email sitting in our inbox with all of the notes and action items to act on from the previous day's meetings. Even better, almost all of the big-name CRMs feed them directly into your database. Yes, it's that easy to keep your meeting notes systematized, archived, and most importantly, compliant. Just go to mobileassistant.us forward slash Brad to take advantage of a special 30-day free trial offer for all Elite Advisor Blueprint listeners. As an added bonus, use coupon code BRADBRAD for a 25% discount. My friend and mobile assistant co-founder Corey has guaranteed me you won't find a better deal anywhere. So to get started, check it out, mobileassistant.us forward slash Brad. In this episode, I have a conversation with Ron Carson, the founder and CEO of Carson Wealth, a top 10 Barron's Wealth Management firm who oversees today's nearly $6 billion of assets. Ron was also recently honored by being an inaugural inductee into the Barron's Hall of Fame. In close to a decade of working in the financial services industry, I've got to say this is one of the most intriguing conversations I've ever had. Ron gives some incredible insights into the steps it took to turn what started as a business out of his dorm room, founded in 1983 at the University of Nebraska, into one of the largest wealth management firms in the country today. In this wide-ranging conversation, we cover all kinds of topics. They range from Ron's philosophy on goal setting and his success percentage each year to Ron's random encounter with a construction worker in Omaha during an especially low point in his career where he questioned actually giving up. Uh, What's interesting, this random encounter actually changed the trajectory of Ron's business. Uh, Along the way, this conversation, we throw in a random 80s movie reference and a principal at Ron he still uses in business today. We discuss what hiring tools and philosophy Carson Wealth utilizes to create a culture that delivers what Ron calls a four-seasons experience while operating with FedEx efficiency. Uh, what tip did a bil- billionaire client actually once give Ron that changed how he leads his team today? What is creative destruction and how knowing about it and planning to evolve can keep you from becoming the next blockbuster or what Ron calls the travel agents of the past. Also, some incredible insights on where Ron sees the future of robo-advisors going and the potential for a symbiotic relationship between human advisors and robo-advisors. So, as always, super incredible conversation with Ron Carson. These show notes and links can be found at bradj.net forward slash podcast podcast. Also, Ron offers a special pre-order link to his upcoming book, The Sustainable Edge. It's going to drop on January 19th. So you've got a pre-release link where Ron included a few additional offers for those uh, that order ahead of time. So without further ado, my conversation with Ron Carson. With that in mind, we're gonna go ahead and we'll keep this super conversational, if that's cool with you.
1: I I love that format, Brad, perfect.
0: Okay, so I figured um, with it being January 4th and the first business day of the new year, I think goal setting is in everybody's mind right now. And I I just wanted to get any insight from you. Obviously, you've had tremendous success in this business. Are there any, what you would say, different ways you look at goal setting or something that's unique to you that's helped uh, you get where you are today.
1: It is. I mean, I love the process of setting goals, achieving goals, probably my favorite time of the year, um, especially this year, because I was laid up. I had all kinds of time to pull out and you know look at the goals that I that I hit, the goals that I didn't hit, why I didn't hit them. And, you know, I have a saying that, you know, we need to live our life by design, not by default. You know, we need to have a game plan as to what we really truly want to accomplish in our lives. And I've always lived by the belief that if you, if you, have, or if you have a clear vision of where you want to go, then you should back it up with what we call SMAC certified goals. They need to be specific, measurable, achievable, and compatible goals. And every year, I go 20 years out. Um, right now, I'm 51. So over the last couple of weeks, when I'm 71, you know what, and my wife will be 70, and my kids will be X, and hopefully I'll have grandkids then. I want to give some framework to what my environment may be like then. What are the things I want to accomplish in 15 years, and 10 years, and five years, and three years, and one year? And the one-year goal, of course, are, are where we're at today. And then I back and continue to follow through a process of what do I need to do daily in order to hit those goals. And what I've learned over the years is I tend to, especially early on, I tended to overestimate what I could get done in the short run. But when I look at the body of work, dramatically underestimated what I could get done over the long haul. And when I reviewed all of the goals, which I did uh, recently, uh, my worst year of hitting goals was 49 percent. My best year was 94 percent. I tell people that if when you set a goal, you believe there's a 50-50 chance of hitting that goal, you're going to hit about 80 percent of your goals. Last year, I actually hit exactly 80 percent of my goals, which was purely coincidental. Over my entire life of setting goals, I've hit about 78 percent of my goals. So that 80 percent rule tends to fall into place. And I find others do as well. So if you're hard of hearts, it's 50-50. You follow a process. You have a way of tracking, keeping it top of mind. Uh, you will accomplish far more than you think possible.
0: So that's incredible insight right there because, you know, you go back to your, your grade school report card, a 75 to 80 percent, you take that home to your parents, they're, they're probably looking at you a little disappointed. But when you lay out these big picture goals, I mean, obviously a guy that's where you're at today, that's incredible. And you you don't even have to accomplish all of them each year. So just the fact that you lay out the framework.
1: Brad, that's an interesting observation you made about school. I mean, I was, I was an average student, um, and I brought home, uh, you know, I got B's, some A's and my parents were disappointed. And I understand why now, because our society expects average. And so, to the degree that you want to give something above average, you can really control the world. I, I was um, before I went. I went into the army, believe it or not, against my parents' wishes, and I was in the, I was in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and and here I was. And they had a program where you could go in your junior year of high school, and I remember. Once I got to boot camp and I'm waiting to meet the sergeant major that really was going to run the boot camp and we waited for an hour. We practiced standing up and everything. And I was just, we're all terrified. And he walked in the room. And he gave what I believe to be one of the most motiv- most motivational talks I've ever heard in my life, uh, which I didn't expect. And he said, you know, you live in a society that doesn't expect much. And if you're willing to give it 10% more than than average. He said, you can control your own destiny and you can have absolutely anything that you want, was the gist of his one hour talk that he gave to us. And, you know, that was sometimes in the most unlikely spots, you pick up some of the greatest nuggets. And to this day, I still think about him and I still think about that and realizing that I think our schools expect average. I think that most people, if you deliver average, they're relieved because most people are are not. And to the degree that you and your organization and you have a general philosophy that you're going to give it at your all all the time, um, you will accomplish going back to the goal setting. You'll accomplish a lot more and you'll impress and you'll help a lot of people a lot more than you think possible.
0: Great advice. All right. So this, this is... Um, This is a fun question. So I remember when I first got into this industry, which would have been 2007. Um, So for those of you that from the peak side that maybe aren't familiar with Advisors Excel, uh, largest insurance brokerage, independent insurance brokerage uh, company in the U S just over $5 billion of annuities and life insurance sales last year through a small group of advisors we consult nationally. So for those of you that aren't well aware of our story, so 2007, I remember the first book that I got handed was tested in the trenches. So it's cool now to come full circle and be doing this conversation with you today. And I, I read that thing, I devoured it. And then I started to hear this, this myth of Ron Carson, right? In our industry. And it went so far as to say, I remember one day somebody's like, Ron only works with Nebraska Cornhusker fans. People that enjoy red wine or that are private pilots and they have to have at least a million bucks. So the first question is, is that's, is that true? I'm curious. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it it Partially true. Not early on, Brad, I would, I would work with anybody that had a pulse <laughs> and, but as I refined my marketing and who I, you know, I said, you know, I really want to work with people that I have some commonality with. So if you looked at my top 10 clients, they had one or four of those, you know, I call them, you know, truly, it was a golf, it was the, the wine, aviation, or really big red football. And so, so much of my marketing revolved around that, that it was, it was just a natural market for me to, to pursue.
0: Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad it, I'm glad it holds some truth. So I'm yeah. curious because I think, I think a big disconnect, and I see this on the coaching side with our clients as well. You put a massive producer up on stage, And all of a sudden there's, there's these steps that are missing. Um, in fact, Jerry, one of my clients submitted a question along these lines. And if you could just spend a little bit of time around Ron Carson, the guy that started, uh, let's, what did that business even look like in 1983 out of your dorm room and maybe the big transitional steps along the way, um, and really the big breakthroughs that got you through those glass ceilings each way. To where now? Carson Wealth, six billion dollars of assets, and and really what that looks like, and maybe even some roadblocks or some struggles or issues you had along the way.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and you know, you'll notice the book Tested in the Trenches was named that because I was frustrated many times. I would hear people giving advice to other people when in fact they hadn't done it, and you know, and they would talk about these big grand ideas without all the how did they truly really get there. And we need to understand that, you know, my journey is all of our journeys really start with the most basic, simple things. And that's, you know, getting up, showing up and and trying something. And you're right. I mean, it was, you know, so I grew up on a farm um, and in the 80s, my dad said, you have to find something else to do. And I was sitting in the library uh, during, during study hall and uh, Money Magazine said, you know, the top 10 professions for the future. One of them was becoming a CFP, and I thought, well, you know, I'm so tired of being grungy and having grease in my skin, because we were always working on our equipment, and if you grew up on a farm, you know what I mean. In those days, you couldn't get it, get it all off of you, and I thought, I want to do something. I can wear a suit and tie every day, and, and it said, become a certified financial planner, so I thought, okay, I'll do that, and I'd, I'd love to tell people that all this thought and research went into it, but it was really that simple, and went down to Nebraska. Uh, originally, we are down to play football, Um, uh, for Tom Osborne as a defensive end. Uh, I was hurt my first year and I was at a medical red shirt and I thought, you know what, I'm going to start my business. And I never went back um, to play football. And, but I started just cold calling out of the phone book for, at the time in 83, there was a insurance product that Amoco Life had come out with, which was Universal Life. And it was you know, Universal Life today, everybody knows of it, but it was cutting-edge way of of insurance. And I sold insurance for about six months, and um, and I just, you know, there was nothing magic about it. You know, my wife today, girlfriend then, uh, even Jason, who works with me here at Carson Wealth, was my my dorm roommate. It was just hard work. I was on the, I was cold call on the phone for two, three, four hours until I'd get two or three appointments up for the next day. And I would tell people that they, and I'm not proud of this, but I had no money. So you had to just survive in those days. I told people they sent in a card requesting information, which they didn't, but there was so much direct mail going on in those days, no one knew. And they'd always say, well, how long ago did I send? I was about six months ago, so who can remember, right? So I'd show up, most of them wouldn't ask to see the card that I didn't have. and. uh And so I had some, I had some limited amount of, of success to me in those days, I was having tremendous success because I grew up in a, I'm going to call it a lower middle class to poor family, depending upon how farming was going, whether we were poor or lower middle class. And so making a few hundred bucks, I felt like I, I was, uh, I was, I was on top of the world.
0: So, and I can relate to that. I I grew up in Kansas on a farm, throwing a few square bales along the way. So yeah. it doesn't, it does instill some uh, hard work uh, qualities into you and it also instills a, a want to get off of the farm. Right? So, um, so, okay. So, so you went and that's, that's the start of kind of how this whole Carson uh, financial services, that whole aspect got started where, So once you graduated, then did you take it full scale where you went and opened up your own shop or what did it look like from there?
1: Yeah. So let me give you, you know, so I, it was pure, what I learned from my father, which probably was really good at the time. I think later on, learned not to be healthy as my dad was a workaholic. I mean, we worked, we worked all the time. I didn't even get to go out for summer sports because of, of that. And I. I love to tell you, I loved it, but I really, you know, I I wanted to play baseball. I want to do some of those things, but he was, uh, and my dad couldn't keep anybody working for him either. He was the kind of guy that there was no such thing as a lunch break. You you brought your lunch to work, you ate it while you were working. Um, And, but it did teach me work ethic. So when I was doing what I was doing. And people go, you're crazy. Why do you want to work that many hours? I'm thinking this is so easy. I actually get paid a little something to do this. I didn't get paid anything to do the other. But I got to a point where I hated this business. I, I, um, um, I think it was 88. Uh, it might've been the end of, uh, it was definitely in, in, uh, uh, I, I'm almost certain it was 1988 because it was after the stock market crashed and I was had a day where, I had not sold anything uh, the entire week. I'd been stood up. Keep in mind of the way I s- set these appointments. So no one let me in their house that day. And I was, all I had is a bunch of paperwork to go back and I am sitting waiting to make a left-hand turn. And every time I go by this intersection, I think about this. And they are, it's, it's, it's a hot humid day in August and this guy's Jack Cameron cement out of the median and just sweating away. And, and I'm like, I envied that guy for for a moment because I'm thinking he's getting paid. I'm not. He doesn't have an order in the world. I All I've got is worries. And he gets to go home tonight, have a shower, have a cold beer, and uh, really enjoy a great day of productivity, and I have nothing to show for it. And that's when I say I envied him for a moment, albeit it was a brief moment, because I was like, oh, my gosh, that is so much what I came from on the farm. I want something more for myself and my family, which I didn't have. I had a, had a wife at the time. And so that's where love affair marketing was born. I I went back to, now I had progressed from working out of my, my car to working out of my wife and I had a studio apartment. So I was working out of the studio apartment. It wasn't until 90 92 that actually even had, um, real office space. That uh, someone could come to an office and actually meet with me. And I remember having a handful of clients that I called up just to check in just to see how they were doing. And their, their reaction really surprised me. They said, you know, Ron, you're just calling. You're really just calling just to say hi. And it's at the end of the conversation. I realized the only other time I'd ever reached out to any of my clients is when i had something to sell them i had a tickle file of every cd pretty much everybody had all their money in cds in those days when they came due, the bank would always try to get them them over a couple of days early i always set an appointment like three or four days ahead of time go see them get them committed to making an investment and in an annuity a mutual fund insurance whatever it happened to be at the time and uh but as i reached going back to this day of dejection where i hated the the business and i was feeling really down i love affair marketing was born because people if you just reach out and you touch them and you show sincere interest and care for how they're doing and i remember one lady saying ron i'm so touched that you just reached out And i'm like you know really you're doing it for me i needed a friendly voice on the other end because i had a maximum amount of rejection that i could handle for the week i didn't say that but that's what i was thinking so i went through and called everybody i could just to check in to see how they were doing and love affair marketing, or building this emotional reciprocity, making deposits into their bucket, so when and if you needed something, um, they were more willing to do it, and that you know, that revolutionized the way that I approach the business, I approach people, and the number of referrals that I get, and it it is so simple to do, but I still find advisors that don't make the birthday calls, um, they don't reach out and touch their clients, they don't have a proactive, touching communication program um, but they're off spending a lot of money doing a lot of things when in fact they could mine the diamonds uh, in their own backyard.
0: What's interesting about it too is you feel good doing it you know it's like I could go to a public seminar which you know we obviously help a lot of our advisors do that as well it's a great form of marketing but it's this awesome form of marketing where you actually give back to the people that trusted you and helped you build your firm from the ground up. And I just, it, it's, it's, it mystifies me how sometimes people don't take advantage of that. They're the people that love you anyway. So, um,
1: and Brad, I, and I just want to add something on that love affair marketing and really the, the things that I teach in both TNT and my newest book, Sustainable Edge, this stuff works and it's so powerful that you really want to make sure that you're in this profession for the right reason. And that you really, truly are, you know, if you start off thinking it, I want to put my client's interests ahead of my own, the money shows up. You know, if you, I know our profession slash industry always says that, but so few people do it, but if you will, to simply have that philosophy and apply the principles that I've laid out, that Scott and I have laid out in the sustainable edge, You will not only have a success, but what you said, Brad, you'll help more people and you feel so good. You have such a return on psyche that you'll have such an energy and a reinvigoration about what we do um, that in in some cases I've had advisors say, I never thought it was possible to feel and have the type of energy that I've had in my profession while doing so much good.
0: So uh, funny, funny time for this quote. Nobody on the call is going to expect the source, but I remember okay. when we were uh, when we were sitting in your office and we had a conversation, you and I, and you pulled out a Brewster's Millions quote, and it was, uh, for those of you that remember, I think it was an 80s movie, but uh, you cannot give away money, time, effort, love without it being returned tenfold. So, yes. like you said, you never know where you're going to pick up those little nuggets of wisdom, right?
1: And that's a great movie to go back <laughs> and watch. I mean... It's obviously, I think Richard Pryor was the main actor in it, um, but it's so true that if you, if you live a life of abundance and you're giving, it does come back tenfold. But if you're giving because you expect it to come back tenfold, it won't. You literally got to give it from the love of wanting to give, and then it does. the, the universe just has a way of rewarding you for, for doing good.
0: Awesome. So I want to continue down this path. Um, so I'm we're walking through these step-by-step. So I've kind of got to the point of you went out, you ventured, you opened up your own office, 93 or so. Um, where was the transition or, and maybe even any of the marketing that you want to share with everyone listening and watching here, where was the transition where it went from Ron with the staff, uh, more of an administrative staff to where you brought on your first associate advisor or second advisor in your office? And what what frustrations did you have maybe along the way and what worked well would you figure out?
1: Yeah, so lots of stuff there. And let me just go you know, back to the love affair marketing. So because I identified love affair marketing, I started identifying, going back to that question about type of client that I had, what were their passions? I really wanted to know and I really targeted So I had events and I would look because I didn't have much money when I first started off. So I was looking for things that are already going on in my community that I could bolt onto and have some sort of presence to something bigger without having to spend a lot of money. The other thing was referrals. My clients went out of their way to give me referrals and Sorelli has a stat that's out there and it, you know, it's probably two or three years old, but it doesn't change from year to year. About 50% of new clients come from referrals, but only 11% of advisors actually ask. And so I taught myself, So always ask, but only ask after I've made many deposits in the emotional bucket. The other thing, Brad, that really drove my business was systemization. You know, how do we have repeatable processes so things don't fall through the cracks? I always promise my clients, you know, a four seasons experience uh, with FedEx efficiency. Staff, I am glad you mentioned that. One of the turning points of my business as well is not think of, of my co-workers as staff but as internal stakeholders don't think of human capital as an expense but truly as an investment and an investment that you are making together you're making it side by side uh, with your internal stakeholders because you're building something together and I think if you can get over that mindset of it's an expense I'm going to bring people in you're looking for some sort of bargains in that area that was a mistake I made time and time again but once I learned to really, and this really came from one of my billionaire clients, he made, he made his billion from scratch. He didn't even start his business until he was 50, a year older than I am, or a year younger than I am right now, and he's self-made billionaire here in Omaha. And I said, what was the, I used to do a series called Habits of Top Achievers, where I would interview very successful people. Now, I really did it because I wanted to get to know them to become a client. And by the way, that worked. Uh, but it gave me a treasure trove of great advice and what this particular person told me said ron because at the end of the interview i'd always say okay what's the one piece of advice that has most led that you can share with me that most led to your success and this particularly one was he said you know hire the best people you can and get the hell out of their way and he said you yeah, know well, as soon as i learned that i was a good delegator but i wasn't the person to do the stuff um I really, my businesses flourish well beyond anything I thought possible. So think about, you love fair marketing, systemization, a different way that you view a team. Be understanding too, I used to sit in front of clients thinking I had to have answers for everything. You don't wanna be a library; you wanna be a librarian, you wanna know where you can find the information, you don't have to have the information. Um, have a, when you're, when you're building your team, and I think we're going through a major change today as, you know, the way that, you know, service is going to be delivered into the marketplace, but make sure they share your, your culture. Culture. I have a, you know, I have a philosophy that culture, eats strategy for lunch. I don't care how great your strategy is. If you don't have people that share your vision and your passion, we're very careful um, here at the Carson group as to anybody that we invite in and make part of part of the group because human you know, your, your, your internal stakeholders and the human capital that you allow to make up your organization are going to drive your, the, the quality of your success is going to be directly proportionate to the quality of the people you surround yourself with.
0: So true. I've seen it over and over again on my side. And, um, what's interesting is when you try to go the affordable route, it creates three, four five times more work when you have to replace those type of employees. Um, there was a, Actually, for those of you that, that aren't familiar with this, there's a great documentary on Netflix. It's called The Lost Interview with Steve Jobs. And he, in it, this is prior to his return to Apple. So this is before he built the iPod, the iPhone. And he gives one piece of advice. They ask him how he built the team that created the original Mac back in 1984. And he said, I only hired eight players, you know, and steel, iron sharpens iron, steel sharpens steel. And he said, what I found is the number one demotivator for great employees is to team them up with somebody that's not a great employee because Mm -hmm. they have to go back and fix their work and it's super frustrating to them. So he said, that was my key, which is basically what you're echoing right there is the same thing that worked for Steve Jobs, worked for Ron Carson to, to build a $6 billion firm. So that's cool to hear.
1: And you would think we would know that because in the financial and in the investing, you know, if you buy a cheap penny stock, it looks cheap and you're getting something for nothing. You're not, they tend to go lower real estate the same way. It is especially true with the people you surround yourself with.
0: Cool. So I'm curious, any big mistakes during this time period where, uh, 51 year old Ron Carson could look back and talk to 25 year old Ron Carson and say, don't do that. Or that was a huge mistake. Why did you do that? Any moments like that along the way as you were building the firm?
1: Yeah, I had so many mistakes. I don't know where to start. I mean, um, one and early on in my career, I was product, product focused. I wasn't solution focused. So I I was not putting my client's interests ahead of my own. Um, I was out, selling something uh, versus really understanding what their needs were and really providing a solution for that. Another major mistake, which I just shared with you is you know, really not hiring the highest quality people that I could, that I could surround myself with. Um, another mistake was having, you know, thinking that you, you had the answer for everything and uh, um, not allowing other people, you know, matter of fact, I probably one of the, the greatest revel at personal, epiphanies i've had is is it that you know i want to be the dumbest person at my organization and i think i've succeeded and uh, you know surround yourself with with bright people and let them make mistakes that was probably one of my biggest mistakes personally if someone made a mistake i was on them about it my philosophy now is i'd rather for you to ask forgiveness and permission and i see so many cool things that are innovative that are creative things that never would have occurred to me that are getting done and getting implemented. and yeah, I'm seeing them the same time they're getting rolled out. Sometimes I'm like, wow, we did this. And it's the type of culture uh, that we, that we have here. The other was, and I'm, I'm to this day susceptible to this. So I've got to constantly be aware of, you know, we're, most of us are entrepreneur and marketing machines. And because of that, we rarely meet a marketing idea that we don't love. So don't get pulled into a bunch of different directions and down a bunch of rabbit holes. you know, understand what it is you want to build, focus on that, have, you know, you want to be aware of your surroundings and opportunities. I get it, but you also don't want to get it pulled in a lot of different directions because as a leader, as, as you know, I think about the highest and best use and the most value I add to the organization is really vision. It's a culture. It's not letting us, and I'm probably the biggest, where I used to be the per- person leading is in a thousand directions more times than not. Now I'm the person saying, no, let's focus on fewer things, but let's make sure that we get them done. And, and how does that really, and does that really fit into what we're trying to accomplish? And so um, it's LNG it's leadership and it's growth and development for my, for my internal stakeholders. That's, that's where I really enjoy in the highest and best use of my time today.
0: All right, so I'm gonna hit on something you mentioned a, a little bit ago that I love the concept. I think it's hard for a lot of the people on the call, at least I know the conversations I've had. Are there any tips that you have to allowing people to make mistakes? Because I think most successful advisors are type A personalities, hard drivers, and it's hard to let go. So any tips or breakthroughs that helped you along the way there?
1: Yeah. Um, I remember I was in a retreat one time, and we, and we just had a retreat uh, not too long ago where we think about, okay, what do we accomplish, where we want to go. And I asked for someone's opinion on something, and they're like, really don't have an opinion. So you got to have an opinion. And they were like, yeah, I do, but you know, I really don't want to share it. And so I had a private conversation with them. They said, you know, every time I share something, you're telling me why it won't work. And I was like, man, I really am. I am the roadblock. I'm the one that's stifling um, my, my greatest minds here at the organization from, from really allowing that creativity to happen. And th- there's a limit though. I mean, if you have internal stakeholders that continue to make the same mistake over and over again, that's, that's a structural problem in the way that they, they make decisions. But I tell you what, if I have someone that makes a mistake um, and they can make 20 mistakes in different areas because they're coming from a position that where I'm trying to accomplish. I've learned a lot of things that maybe didn't work and we're able to have a better strategy going forward. I've been OK with that. And you just got to bite your tongue. And here's the other thing you talk about mistakes. Is that People that work with you are not going to do the things the way you do them. It's just not. And in, deep down, because many of us have been successful entrepreneurs, we've been very protective. You know, what God is to, and if you're, if you're satisfied hitting a certain level of growth and staying there, if you continue to adopt that, that philosophy, you'll never move beyond it. L- let people do things their way. Um, let them have true authorship in, um, in the things that they develop. And don't ever, even if it is your idea, don't take credit for it. You know, give credit whenever possible, um, and try never, even if it is your idea, to let someone else have the have authorship of, of whatever the idea is, and that's hard. I wanna come back to a point, too, that I, a mistake that I made, and that was working all the time. When I talk, I'm gonna go back to the sustainable edge, because the general premise, and uh, a true aha moment for me was, is as I started to surround myself with really high quality people, and we were focusing on fewer things, my life got much simpler um, and much more satisfying because when I was working all the time, it really wasn't a lot of fun. And my wife would say, you know, Jeannie, it's a gosh, you're stressed out all the time. You know, why do you do it? I mean, we have plenty of resources, i.e., you know, we can buy anything that we want. So why do you do it? And I said, that's a great question. I think, you know, I love it most of the time, but, I really want to do some other things in my life. So as I started to surround myself with good people, fewer, better, focused decisions, I got a balance in my life. As soon as I brought more balance in, my growth rate accelerated. As my growth rate accelerated, it made me excited because looking at what led to that growth was the balance. So balance led to growth. Growth fed the balance, and it's this virtuous, very positive cycle you'll never get to the positive sustainable edge cycle of balance, growing growth and growth, growing balance, unless you allow people to make mistakes and you surround yourself with the best people you can find.
0: Great advice. Thank you. Um, so a question from Chris that's on the call here. Uh, so we talked about hiring superstars as as advisors. His question is he's heard the advice, on the administrative side to hire loyal hard workers that are more people that are good at following a system as opposed to superstars because superstars will kind of venture their own way. Have you found that to be true or do you think that advice is is off base?
1: Well, it depends on the position, so we use, we have a process, we use top grading to initially vet a lot of people and if you're not using top grading I strongly recommend it, uh, I know And I'd have to get an updated number from HR, but as of a couple of months ago, about 50% of the people that start the top grading process don't even finish. And it's by design. I mean, it's a very intense way of applying for a job. So the people that make it through, they're already telling you something about themselves. Then we do a telephone interview. So you really have to
0: hire... Ron, real quick there, because I want to make sure I got that right for all the listeners and we'll we'll include, include this in the show notes. Pop POP grading... Or top T O P
1: Tango Oscar Papa top, top grading.
0: grading got it yes okay
1: and and so by the way um, uh, it is it has saved our people that are looking to bring people in um, a lot of time and they're telling me that the applicants that actually go through the process are much more qualified uh, than we've had in the past and then we have a very defined roles and responsibilities what's the job description. Then we do a telephone interview. You know, of course, we're looking at the resume as well to say, you know, is this person properly equipped? Then, if they go through, make it through the telephone interview, they come in for an in-person interview. And that in-person interview, they do a DISC, which is we measure their their. And for those of you who don't know what DISC is, it's just a way of measuring um, what type of people they are, what kind of work, how they like to work, how they interact, what their social drivers are. Is money important to them? Is knowledge important? all those things are important to know about the the person and the role as it relates to the role that they're going to fulfill and then we'll put them through wonderlick we want to know how how intelligent is this person especially under pressure so we've got a certain disk profile that we're looking for for a position we have a certain wonderlick score that we're looking for a certain position admin of course would be different than our CIO or or let's say you know cfo um but all that could line up uh but the most critical part is we'll have them in for a series of three or four we'll have them to dinner we'll meet their spouse uh is the cultural part because all the rest of the stuff they could be rock stars on but if there's not a cultural alignment remember what i said you know the best strategy in the world but if you don't have cultural alignment nothing's really going to get executed and we wear people out um we just recently had uh, Tyler start, him and his wife moved here from Scottsdale, Arizona. And his wife was over to my house for having a glass of, of, of wine. And she said, man, I never thought he would ever get this position. And I said, why? And he says, well, just the number of times that you guys you know, talked to him and all the stuff he had to go through. And I said, well, you know, just know we don't bring anybody into our organization lightly. And here's the thing too, they're a young couple. He's, he was with Northern Trust in Scottsdale and uh, moving to Omaha, Nebraska. He's from Southern California. She's from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and he to come to Omaha to live in our winters (laughs) with it. snow on the ground as we speak. Uh, But anyway, so they have a process to bringing in the internal stakeholder. I think ours is very extensive since we added all of these steps. Um, Our turnover ratio has dropped dramatically because we're getting the right people in the right spot. So back to your original question, It depends on the position in some spots you're going to want overachievers and others you're going to want a different type of personality Um, make sure the compensation is is right and some people are driven by incentive compensation and they want to operate in a results-based world where they don't need a lot of base but they want a lot of upside and then you've got your time and effort where people just want to put in the time and the effort they don't they're this isn't going to be a career culturally they can be aligned where they don't they're not they're not championing the vision 24 hours a day, not that they can't be part of the team, but you're gonna reward them and compensate them differently as well.
0: Great. Okay, so on the book, uh, because this kind of circles back around the work-life balance that you were hitting on. uh, So on the sustainable edge and one of the giveaways for everybody on the call here today is the IQ grower. Can you walk through, and it's for those of you that can see the feed here, it's kind of a one pager. Can you walk through how that kind of leads into the the focus that you were talking about there?
1: Well, let's go back because the reason, one of the things that I teach in TNT is to go through the blueprinting process. And the blueprinting process, if I can get someone to actually go through it, is phenomenal. Um, But it takes, it's an emotional commitment that most people really struggle doing, especially even though you're the only one. Looking at what you put on the paper. um, It's hard sometimes to be 100% honest with yourself. So I, I, I struggled getting people to really commit to the blueprinting process, but I still recommend That you do that. I came up with the I grew IQ grower process in order to give someone something much simpler than blueprinting. Now if you do blueprinting, you can still use the IQ grower process, but if you don't do the blueprinting, IQ grower process will get you the heart out of the watermelon, if you will, and get the essence of what we're trying to get you to accomplish. And the very first step is, is you know, what do I value most? So you want to list what are the four things, you know, why are you on this earth? You know, what are the things that, if, if there were no constraints in your life, what are the things that, that you value? Where would you spend most of your, your time? And that's the next question is, what activities are most meaningful to you? And that's also, you have to come back and say, okay, if, if I'm valuing X, but all my activities that are meaningful to me are different than what I value, you have to go back and say, is there a mismatch there? Am I, really, am I really clear in my thinking? You know, these are the things that I value, but these are the activities that I really enjoy doing. But if you spend the time going through it and get an alignment between what, my, what I value most what my meaningful activities are and how I'm going to actually spend my day. And then what is my attitude for gratitude? You know, one of the things that I've been a big believer for, I have a thing in my shower. I have, I have 28 things that I'm grateful for and, and I always pick one and I think about it, you know, as I'm in there going through, I have all my goals actually laminated in my shower too. But, um, and you know what, that's my theme for the day is, is, you know, what, what, what is it that is going to resonate in my mind or I'm going to have to stay top of mind. So I wanted to give, Scott and I wanted to give people a template that they could have it front and center. So you've got this first three steps. What do I value? What are my activities? And what am I grateful for? And by the way, people that are mindfully grateful for anything are more positive people, are happier as well. Then step four is the vital one. What's the thing that's the theme for the week? You know what's the one big thing that i've got to get accomplished this for this particular week and you're going to notice i'm going to ask you there's another column to say how good are you at it and how excited are you and ideally your vital ones every week you should be good at accomplishing whatever it is you want to get done um, and you should be excited for it otherwise find another way or having someone else be able to accomplish this thing for you and then i have the six most which i do every night before i go to bed What are the six most important things in order of priority that I've got to get done? And then there's a column to the left to say, is this tied to my goals for the year? Yes or no. Can you imagine if you have day after day where your six most isn't tied to your goals? Well, that's not the six most. That's just something you should should put on a notepad and get to when you can. It's not urgent. It's not important. It may be necessary at some point, but most, if not all of your six most should be tied to your goals like the vital one, I want to know, am I excited? And am I good at it? Now there's some things that are impossible. Uh, for example, I work out pretty much every day, I don't enjoy it and I'm not excited. So they are like two zeros for me. And, uh, and I'm, I guess I'm okay at it, um, but it's just one of those necessary evils that if I want to have good health and that's some of my long-term goals that I'm gonna have. So I'll, rec- I'll give you the fact that maybe they all can't be, you know, you're ecstatic to do, but most everything on my six most of my vital one, I feel I'm good at and I'm truly excited and I look forward to doing. That is knowing that that activity of the day is tied to my one year goal, which is tied to my three, my five, my 10, my 15, or my 20 year. When things get chaotic or they get tough or I get distracted, this IQ grower, we call it implement, implementation quotient, getting stuff done that's important to you, gives me the ability to act sometimes when motivation's not present. Gives me the ability to focus when I get distracted. Gives me the ability to get back on track, and knowing that at the end of the day, if I only spent, if I spent all my time on number one or number two, I spent my entire, all available resources on the one or two most important thing that day, which are ultimately tied to what I'm trying to accomplish in my life.
0: That reminds me of advice from another guy out of Omaha, uh, Mr. Buffett. He calls it the Avoid at All Costs list, right? Basically, yeah. get all that stuff off my desk. So, um, great advice. Uh, so, since we're getting, we've got about 10 minutes here uh, on the call. There's a laundry list of things that I want to ask. Um, I know we don't have the ability to discuss the whole book in its entirety on today's call. Yeah. But if, there, if there was one or two key items or ideas or concepts out of the book that you wanted to leave everybody with on the call, what would they be?
1: There's a couple. I mean, one is we, we ask you, we, we open up the book is the ultimate question. I mean, if you were to die tonight is a firm that you have today, your way of doing business, a firm that you would want to handle your loved one's wealth. And that's a biggie because if it, if your firm's not great without you, you don't have a firm, you've got a, you've got a job. And so it's gotta be great without you. So the ultimate question is it's an exercise we ask you to go through and ultimately, um, once you can answer yes to that, you will get more referrals because you'll be entitled. A lot of the reasons I believe advisors don't ask for referrals is they don't feel they have a, a value proposition that's worthy of the referrals. So if you solve for the ultimate question, you'll have those. The other is you have to grow at a certain rate. We put in the book 15%. There's some Harvard work around this that that's the minimum growth rate in order to have a viable uh, organization. Um, uh, my organization has grown at over 28% since 1983, so almost double that. So you're saying, why 15? If you focus on if and you do everything to say we're minimum going to grow 15% a year, you're probably going to grow 20 or 25% a year. And we talk about you know, some of the things that are really important and things you need to be thinking about. I talk about you know, how do you harness the subconscious mind is one of the chapters in the book. Um, also, delivering value beyond a doubt i mean there is massive opportunity in financial services today we're going through creative destruction um and for those of you that don't know what creative destruction is it's really an idea that was born by karl marx that was really refined the thinking by joseph Schumpeter, which was an austrian economist and we're our profession is going through this right now. So creative destruction simply means you you destroy one way of delivering value in order for a much better way. And I can give you two examples of that. Um, and this is important to understand because if you think you're going to be able to do things the way you've always done them, I think you're we're all in for a, a big surprise in the future. Uh, the telecom industry in Omaha here, a company called Level Three Communications wrote the 1996 Telecommunications Act. It allowed uh, for competition. It allowed the old legacy carriers to really become irrelevant. And as consumers, we benefited because look at the smartphone. Look at the cost of, of, of communication and transmission today. Look at the things we can do. Would not have happened without the creative destructive process. Another creative destructive process was Blockbuster Video. Blockbuster Video in 2006, was um, I think they had 9,000 locations, 60,000 employees, they're at the top. And Netflix was coming on the scene. I remember sitting on an analyst call and they're like, no, you know, you get these discs and they're scratched and sometimes they get lost. The mistake the market made is they were comparing Netflix as it in the, in the, in the form that was at that moment was not a threat. They didn't think about Netflix evolving. And four years later, Blockbuster filed bankruptcy. Think about that, I mean, how quickly That whole process actually unveiled. Today, Uber. Uber is going to replace the taxi cab driver and some of the private limousine services that are out there today. So my question for you, when you think about adding value beyond a doubt, are you going to become a travel agent of the past? Think about it, because travel agents were a vital part. They could charge 10%. They were getting, they were adding some value and all of a sudden the internet and other services replaced it. I mean, make no mistake, I think our opportunities are greater than they've ever been, but you're going to have to think about how can you differentiate yourself? What are the valuable services you can provide? And and if you do that and you do it at a fair price, then you're going to really rule the market.
0: So the um, the analogy I would make for our industry is the robo-advisor. So can you share yeah. your insights there as far as how do you do you see incorporating that into your firm do you see just the value proposition changing what 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 are your thoughts there
1: yeah it's, i hate the term robo um i think it's it, i'm going to compare robo would have been netflix when it first came on the scene right people are saying well that's not going to replace it you're right what you see today is is not i'm privy i'm actually an investor in some of these i'm going to call them disruptive technologies that are going to be emerging um, so the answer to your question, Brad, is, yeah, We're definitely going to have what we call meaningful human touch with maximum technology, where those things actually converge. So someone can come to I don't even call it a website, a call or digital marketing hub, and they can they can they can pick and choose how they want to interact with our firm. they We don't want to have them tied up in that if they want to, they want to work with an advisor this way, they want to work with advisor that way. If there's times that they go, I really don't need an advisor for this point in my life, we want to make it really simple to move from from one model to the other model. The other thing that's not far away is there are data, those big data aggregators where tonight, you know, every tonight there'll be a million millions and millions and millions it's not trillions of accounts actually aggregated where they know account level detail how old you are and how you've actually performed they don't they're not they don't have your private information but they know enough about you where with i think by this time next year you'll be able to go to come to our digital marketing site and someone can say gosh i heard this guy talk about investing and i should get a second opinion I think that the techno I know the technology is there today, whether to be comor- commercially viable a year from now is a big question, but can you imagine if your client could link their, all of their accounts or just an account cause they're curious and it can tell them, Hey, John, um, other people just like yourself that are, that are your age over the last three years, you've underperformed them by 17%. You've paid 11% more in fees, and you've taken on 34% more in volatility. That technology is out there today, and and it's not an indice. It's compared to my peer group, compared to other people just like myself. By the way, here's how our stuff actually performs. If you want to transfer it, you can actually complete you know an online application to do so. That's going to happen. So if you're if you're stuck in a way of doing business that's not going to allow for maximum optionality, I think that just as fast as Blockbuster went to the wayside, the legacy telecom carriers went to the wayside, the old traditional way of doing business uh, five years from now, I think won't look anything like it looks today, which on some levels scare me to death, but on others really excite me for the future.
0: Very interesting. Uh, What's if there was one thing that your firm's doing today to make sure you aren't the blockbuster of the past, as far as from a te- uh, technology aspect, what would that one tip be or tool if you don't mind sharing? If,
1: yeah, if, I, I'd invite you just to go look at our our, um, our digital marketing hub, which you would call a website. You can go to um, CarsonWealth.com or Carson Institutional Alliance, either one of them, they're very interactive. We're able to push and pull information. And I, uh, prior to, we launched this in July, I'll give you a couple stats here. July 1st, we went live with our digital marketing hub. In three months, we had 28,000 unique users. Now, prior to that, that, that is more unique users than we had had in the several years, because far back as we had records for, we had more unique users, more unique visitors in a three month period of time. We would get occasional lead or two a month from our website we had 300 and some leads actually come in from this. And you can go through our, and you can see, um, you can just see exactly what we're doing um, and how we're able to pull you in, get some information from you, and then have an advisor actually reach out. So that's a very, very first generation of what we're doing today. And then we're also always thinking internally about what's the next, the next, next, and the next, next, next. So we always have, You know, what's immediate that we're implementing? What are things that we plan on implementing next year? And what's our wish list of items that if we had no constraints, you know, how would we want to do business? What would we want to be able to offer to the marketplace?
0: Great. Um, Ron, so on your side, I want to respect your time. I know you're kind of busy guy and and you've been out of the office, so I'm sure you have extra stuff. (laughs) Um, I'm going to change my, well, I'm going to ask two questions here to wrap up. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm changing my, my last question due to this conversation, but, uh, the first one's a selfish one. Uh, if there was a Napa Cabernet that I needed to try out there that I'd never heard of, what would you recommend?
1: Well, um, Altamira, As a matter of fact, uh, Frank and Karen actually own the vineyard, uh, Altamira, uh, they're 12, they're 13 and they're 14 are going to be among the best ever. Their 2007 was ranked the number six best wine in the world. Uh, it's it's about 80 bucks a bottle, pretty reasonable. If you tell them, um, Ron Carson asked you to call, they should give you a 20% discount on that. And I I was in Vegas a few months ago and they had it on the menu for $375 a bottle. So I tells you what they're selling it for, for the places that can actually get it because they sell out every year.
0: Thank you, I'll, I'll make sure to pick a bottle of that up. Um, All right. All right, so here here's my final question. And, and as we're wrapping up here, uh, I just want to say thank you so much, Ron, for joining us here. This has been an incredible conversation. I know it's brought a ton of value to everybody joining us here today. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you. And I would love to offer our pre-order for our books too. It comes out January 19th. If you do a bulk order and you can go to the sustainableedge dot com, the sustainableedge.com, the sustainableedge.com Um, And if you order, even at 10 books, we do something for you at 50 books, at 100 books. um, You can even get a PowerPoint where you can go out and prospect small business owners. So uh, if you do a bulk order, there's some cool premium items uh, that myself and Scott are willing to do for you. And, And if you can put the order in prior to January 19th, our publication date, we'd really appreciate it.
0: And for everybody on the uh, the call here today, we'll make that super easy for you. Uh, we'll shoot an email out with that link that Ron's talking about with those different offers. So keep an eye out for that. Also, uh, keep an eye out for this as a podcast. We'll repurpose it and get some show notes out. So, Ron, however you guys wanna use that on your side too, you're welcome to.
1: Great,
0: um, great. And right.
1: Thanks for having me today, Brad, what, it's been
0: great. One last question for you, Ron. Oh yeah, yes. All right, so now I had to change it because of, because of the piece of information you shared there. So. If you had one piece of advice that you could share with me that led to your success, what would it be?
1: Um, get out of the way. Just get out of the way and let people, the people that are around you have way more and answers and can provide opportunities uh, than, you, than you give them credit for. So get out of the way and let it happen.
0: All right. Great advice. Well, thank you, Ron. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Really appreciate thank you, you. Being here today. Thanks for listening. For more about the podcast or about the Elite Advisor Blueprint, be sure to visit bradj.net. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.